Well, uh, Labor Day Sunday is always a bit of a turning point, uh, probably in your home and mine, and also in the life of the church. And it's also sort of a, a middle transitory moment in terms of preaching as well. And so we've come through a summer series created for good, where we've uh, looked at the origin stories of the Bible and considered what that means, what that means for how we live now, and the difference that Jesus makes and how we live out of the life that he made possible. And so today, there's a bit of a, a, bit of a break before we start into things for the fall. And I've been thinking about what should this message be? What, what could we focus on that might have some sense of resonance with where we've been uh, in, on our journey, but also where we might need to go? And I've been having a lot of conversations uh, with people around what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus, but why we sometimes feel just drugged down in the midst of that. Why it feels like a lot of work and drudgery. And again and again in my own mind, I've been reminded of um, a way of explaining that experience uh, from Arrow Leadership, which I took a number of years ago. I think it was 2011 that I began, and I was in it for about two years. And it gathered Christian leaders from across North America in one of the most beautiful locations in British Columbia you could possibly imagine. And uh, while I was there, I learned about the cycles of grief and grace. Now, I know when I talk about a diagram or I indicate some sort of you know, model of something, that might immediately put your back up a little bit, that maybe this is not going to be something from the Bible. But I want to simply describe this as it's, it's a way of helping explain what we see in the Bible in, in a diagram. A couple of diagrams, actually. And I've spoken about this in various ways at different times, but I thought I'd do a little more extended time with it today because it keeps coming up in conversations that I'm having. And in particular, there was a, there's a podcast that a number of Christians have been listening to these days called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a church in uh, the U.S., and it experienced sort of a meteoric rise uh, in growth, a large, large congregation, and then very suddenly came to a point where its doors closed. And the question of this podcast has been, what has contributed to that? Where did that all come from? And there was one particular episode in the series, as it's still ongoing, about uh, a man named Joshua Harris. And he, Joshua Harris had a big impact in my circles when I was growing up. He was uh, a young man who wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And if you never heard about that book, then good for you. <laughs> um, but it sort of was like, it had this idea that Christians, essentially the idea was this, and this isn't the point of the sermon, but it gives some context. The point of the sermon was that when people are dating, it's often leading to um, premarital sex or to lust or other things like this, and so dating itself should be avoided completely. And it was this idea of putting strict boundaries around um, sort of courtship and ways that boys and girls, young men and women, would relate with one another in order to, to really sanctify marriage and to make it holy and all of this. And I think there was some good intentions behind that, obviously. But what it resulted in was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of messages that weren't really the teaching of Jesus. And it was essentially a lot of law, a lot of regulation, which 
there is always some value in understanding a guideline to our life, of course. God hasn't left us without guidance, but it created a burdensome thing that created other problems. And what has come about in his story in this podcast was him talking about how that weighed him down. Eventually, he became a pastor. He was a very young man when he became that. Had never really received any training formally. And kept going, kept going, and through one crisis after another in his congregation, got to the point where he left ministry. He actually went back to school to try to figure out a lot of the questions he was having, a lot of his own brokenness. And then eventually, while he was in seminary, decided that... uh, Well, within one week's time, he announced both that he and his wife were getting a divorce and that also he was no longer a Christian. And as his story was sort of being told on this podcast, it was clear to the interviewer and to me that he still is trying to live under law, not under grace. And the message of the gospel, the message of good news that Jesus brings, is not one of ascribing to and following a long list of rules, but it's about living by the Spirit of God as a child of God. That we can be free of that burden, because we can never live up to the rules. We can use them as a reference point to understand what it means to live by the Spirit, but it's only by the Spirit that we can never come anywhere close to experiencing that life that's described in the law. Now, that's a whole... A bit of a a complex introduction, perhaps. But that podcast has prompted a number of conversations with me, my friends, people that I know in the church. And I've also had it come up in other avenues and other conversations unrelated to that. But it's to show you, here's an example of of a person who was deeply committed to Jesus and his church. And instead of finding it life giving, found it robbed him of life and created a situation where he was robbing other people of life in his teaching to the point where he walked away from it all. And what I want to say and what I want to suggest to you is not that Christianity is so hard so much as it is that sometimes we get it backwards. And if we can understand what it really means to live by grace and to live out the good news of Jesus that we won't find it so much burdensome as we will find it life-giving. So I want to do this, I want to get into this by looking at another religious leader. I want to look at a religious leader within the pages of Scripture named Nicodemus. He was a well-respected religious leader. And this story is told in John chapter 3. But before we get to John 3, I want to show you how the Gospel of John introduces the book and what is about to come in the story of Nicodemus and Jesus. So let's look at the first uh, couple of verses here. This is from John chapter 1, as it's beginning the introduction to the whole book. In fact, last week I had Luke read this for us. He, Jesus, the Word, came into the very world he created. Okay, so that's our tie-in to the past summer. Jesus is entering the world he created. But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. 
So, it's identified that Jesus is entering the world, but the world didn't recognize him. And what he has come to do is to help people believe in him, to accept him, and become children of God. Now, they're reborn. There's a, a, you're born again. That's the language we're about to hear. Born again in this. And it's not of a power that you had. It's not a power that anyone else had as a human being. But it's a power that comes from the Spirit of God. So that's some introduction into what Jesus is coming to do and accomplish here on earth. And let's enter now into the story here on the next slide. And we see in this interaction, Nicodemus has come to Jesus in the nighttime. Now, I've been reflecting on this a little bit more in the summer because I've been uh, out and about in cottages a number of times. And the, the, the thing that you experience when you're away from home, and some of you live in a place where you're more exposed to kind of the, the rural uh, life. I'm a little bit more in the suburbs of Charlottetown here. But you open the door at night, you walk out of the cottage, and it's dark. And it's, it's the moon, maybe, the stars, certainly a lot more than I see normally at my house. But nighttime, when you don't have electricity, nighttime's the, not the time that you're out and about, especially in that day and age. That's the time when robbers and thieves are out and about. And if you're out and about too, you might get robbed and thieved. Is that the word? <laughs> I think it's just robbed. Robbed probably covers both being robbed and thieved, but you understand the point. So it's strange that Nicodemus is out and about. Why is he coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness? Probably because he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want people to know that he's talking to Jesus. But he's Because he's a well-respected religious leader. And he has questions. Religious leaders aren't supposed to have questions. We're supposed to have answers, aren't we? So Nicodemus comes under the cover of darkness, and he begins talking to Jesus. And as the conversation ensues, Jesus replies to him with some of his questions. I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now there's something there that we can't see in the English. The word born again it can mean two different things because of the words that are used in the Greek. It can mean born again, or it can mean born from above, which could mean you know, a birth from God. Well, I think the most appropriate way to interpret is with both of those at once. But we've had to choose something here in the English, and they've chosen simply born again. So there is already an element of confusion in what Jesus has said, which is what you're about to see Nicodemus ask a question about. But let me say it all as one phrase. Unless you are born again from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? It's because the word has a double meaning. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Well, he's taking this very literally, obviously. And, of course, he's right. That's, it's totally impossible. Jesus replies, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can produce, reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. In other words, your mother and father, they were able to choose to give birth to you. However, that's only human life. But if you want to live in a way that is in tune with God and his kingdom, you have to have the breath of God within you. You have to have the Holy Spirit birthing spiritual life within you. This is, again, sort of the subtle callback to the language of Genesis that we've been exploring where God 
breathes his breath, his spirit, into human beings in order for us to live. We're designed not only to have a physical conception, but to within us to be sparked by the life of God, to live in intimate connection with God at all times. And so this is confusing for Nicodemus. And then there's this. Let's turn to the next. No, go back. Then Jesus replies, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. Whoa. This is, if you were texting this, this would be a fire emoji. <laughs> this is a very pointed comment. But yes, of course, it's true. Nicodemus is the one who is not only uh, claiming to be a, 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 someone who understands the ways of God, but he's also teaching it. And yet he doesn't seem to understand one of the most basic concepts that we are designed by God to live by the power of God. And that we can't live apart from God's power, his birth, his spirit working within us. Jesus says, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. And so partly, although that is sort of this subtle rebuke on Nicodemus's part, I, I want to say to you, if If you, as we go through this conversation, you sort of begin to say, why didn't I ever understand this? Or why didn't anyone ever explain it to me? It might be because it actually could be hard for you to understand. Although it's meant to be quite basic and simple. Even the smart, studied people can miss this. And what I'm about to share with you uh, is very much in line with what happens here in this story. But we're going to begin walking now into the model of explaining grief and grace. And the first time that this was introduced to me at our leadership, it was a room full of about 20 uh, leaders from all over North America. And this is a smart group of people. This is a well-educated group of people. These are all Christian leaders, pastors, ministers within other organizations such as the Salvation Army and parachurch organizations, wonderful ministries all around our entire continent. And as this model was used to explain the gospel, because that's the point, it's about the gospel, it's not about the model. As it was used, people all through the room began to see how they had missed the gospel and were living out of a way that was burdensome, robbing them of life, and making it harder for them to know the life of Jesus within them. So that's my goal today, is for us to see the gospel clearly using this lens. So let's go to it now. Here what we see is the sort of basis for Nicodemus' own thoughts, and the basis really for how much of the world operates, whether we realize it or not. We instinctively operate based on an idea that we begin with our achievements, what we do, that our identity and our value begins by an achievement, what we can accomplish. Oh, it starts as a child. Oh, you're a good boy. Good for you. You ate your food. You put your toys away. It starts small and it starts there, doesn't it? You are a good boy. You are a good girl because you did that. And from that sense of accomplishment, achievement, 
we then gain a sense of significance. I'm a good boy because I did those things. Which sustains us and gives us energy to try again the next time. And it also leads us to the place where we feel accepted. My parents think I'm a good boy. I'm a good part of this family. I belong and I get to be part of this. Well, you see how that goes, though. The moment that you fail, the moment that you make a mistake, the moment that you don't live up to, you now no longer have a sense of significance. Instead, you have a sense that you are not valuable. You're shamed. You no longer have this energy. It robs you of life. And the sense of acceptance is gone. You are no longer part of the family or the friendship or whatever it might be. The church that you want to be part of. Because you don't measure up. And when we live that way, it robs us of life. It's a burden. It's painful. And you might look at that, you might even be looking at that right now saying, well, who would ever do that? That's just foolish. But consider. Consider. Is that the way that you tend to operate? Beginning with a sense of what you can do or not do, a sense of significance that comes from that, which perhaps sustains us for a while and allows us to feel accepted. You, you all know that I'm divorced. That's not a surprise. <laughs> But I went through a time where being a, a, a pastor who was um, in the process of a divorce, going through any kind of marital situation, allowed me to see that there was a lot of people in the church who saw me only as valuable if I was doing good things as a pastor. That there were a lot of expectations that I would do which would give me significance, and I felt it within myself, which allowed me to be accepted as part of the church. And the moment that I no longer did, I was no longer accepted. By some, by some. And when you live this way, it's awful. And I wasn't trying to live that way. I didn't believe that that defined who I am as a human being. I didn't believe that that defined my value. And I will say, the vast majority of people here at Cornerstone did not treat me that way at all. So I'm not trying to heap this on you or something like that. But what I'm saying is, I've experienced what it's like to be defined by some people by my achievements and to feel unaccepted as a result of that. And you know what this model is? This is the model of grief. And I've experienced it in my own life, and many of you have experienced it as well. You haven't wanted to go to church, maybe, on the days where there's been a problem. Because that grief, that burden, separates you from the community. It feels like it separates you from Jesus. Or you felt it in your own family. 
You didn't do the job or the career path that you thought you were supposed to or your parents thought you were supposed to and you were treated badly or you made a choice or you, you did a course or you, you had a friendship or you had a relationship that somehow separated you and you were no longer acceptable within your family because of the things you did. This happens all the time. And there's different words we could use to describe each section, each category. But when it's essentially we're trying to build our value and our identity off of our achievements to work towards some kinds of acceptance, it's a cycle of grief, of endless grief, of brokenness and pain. And I want to show you now what a cycle of grace, what a cycle of grace would begin to look like. And we take all those same words, we take that same circle, and we do this. In the cycle of grace, what we do is we recognize we are accepted and loved. That we're part of God's family. When we believe in Him and we are His people, we are accepted and loved. And that sustains us, that gives us life. And from that, we gain a sense of significance because I am a child of God, we declare. I'm a daughter of the King. I'm a son of the Father. Which allows us to do things and to have energy and power and strength to achieve things. But now when we make mistakes, it's just the mistake. It's not, hey, you're a piece of garbage. Hey, you don't belong. And this is the way that I was trying to live during that season where I heard a lot of people sort of saying things and whispering in my ear that I was no longer really acceptable. Because I realized, no, 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 it doesn't matter what you think. I am loved. I am accepted. And that gives me a a sustaining power of Jesus. It gives me a sense of significance. And whether or not I achieve or do or accomplish... Yeah, I wasn't supposed to be this emotional. I wasn't actually talk about that as a, but I just thought this is the best way I can illustrate it, and so I'll just light myself on fire. Uh, listen, if I, as a religious leader, can struggle with these things, then you can too. And if I can show you in any small way how this makes a difference in your life because it's made a difference in mine, then that's what I'm here for. So. When we realize we're accepted, you're loved. Like, you know what this feels like. Okay, so this is when you're on, you know, the soccer team, the basketball team, the hockey team, whatever team you're on, and they say, go for it, we're in this with you, and like, just do the best you can. And at the end of the game, you miss the goal, you hit the goal, whatever happens, people are still like, there you are, you you did your best, you tried, you made an effort, or you did it, great, that was awesome. But it's now no longer that you're still part of the team. It's just, you accomplished it or you didn't, but you're still part of us and we love you. This is the feeling of being loved by your parents to say, I don't care whether you pass the test or fail. I don't care whether you get the job or whether that thing happens or not. I just love you and I just want to be with you. And that's grace. That's a gift. That's love. That's what the love of Jesus is all about. Think about the story of the prodigal son. We sang earlier, your goodness is running after, running after me. Well, what do you think that image is? That's the image of the end of the story of the prodigal son. 
The prodigal is one who says to his father, give me my inheritance. I wish you were dead, essentially. Give that to me now. I'm going off on my own, and I'm doing my own thing. And when he comes to his senses and goes back to his father, the father runs to him while he's still a long way off. And what has the, what has the son done? Has the, has the son accomplished anything at that point? No. Has the son done anything to re-earn his father's favor? No. The father simply shows him grace, which is, you are accepted, you are mine, you are loved. And the son has this whole speech. He's trying to get back into the cycle of grief. He's trying to say, I will work as a servant for you. I I will be a slave for you in your house if I can just be in your home. And the father instead reverses that and says, no, you're already accepted. You don't have to earn your way back in. You are loved, you are welcomed. And he says, kill the cow, we're having a barbecue. Give him my best suit and tie. There's also another son in that house who's lost. And it's the son, the older brother, who stayed in the house the whole time. And it's the son who sees this party going on and says to his father, how in the world could you let that ragamuffin back in? I've been here this whole time working hard for you. You've never even given me a goat for me and my friends to have a party. In other words, I have been working to achieve and earn your favor and love, and you've never given it to me. And the father says, whoa, hold on. You've been here with me the whole time. You've been eating out of my fridge every single day. You live in my house, and you're not paying rent. I've given you my business. You have had everything that is mine. You have been accepted and loved with grace from the beginning. You never had to earn it, but that son never got it either. And that whole story was told for a bunch of people like Nicodemus who weren't getting it. A bunch of religious leaders who were still trying to earn the favor of God. And Jesus is saying to them, to you, to me, you don't have to earn this. I'm the one paying the bill. You don't have to do and do and do to earn my favor and to get in my good books and to have life. That's not what Jesus came for. That's not what it's about. And that's still how most of us try to live when we examine it closely. Some of us even do it in this really kind of weird Christian way where we say, well, Jesus did all this for me, so I have to do this for him. And it's the sense of obligation that comes from it. And it sounds pretty good. It sounds good, but it's still wrong. It's still the cycle of grief rather than grace. Grace begins with the gift. The cycle of grace begins with the acceptance. There's nothing to earn. It's just we live out of that. That sustains us. It gives us significance. And we accomplish things, or we try to do things, based on his power and strength within us. But it's now such a different orientation to things, because we are loved. We are accepted. We are a part of his kingdom life. And there's grace for us when we fail. And I want to encourage you to see it this way and begin to live that way. Let's go on to the next slide here. I want to begin to take some comparisons. So you see here, Nicodemus was really living out this life of grief. We see the same things, the same types of things that we do, but it's put in backwards order. This is kind of the language we've been talking about through the Created for Good series, is we can take something good and put it backwards, and it makes a problem. Now things are out of joint, was the language last week. You all know what it's like to step on your foot when it's out of joint. It hurts. Whereas Jesus here is modeling for us, teaching us about the way of acceptance and grace that then provokes us to good works, of course, but doesn't start there. 
so let's begin the comparison a little bit more. Next slide. So what we see here in someone like Nicodemus, and again, we're not hearing much of Nicodemus' story, but we can infer some things based on who he is and other uh, sort of religious leaders of the day. We see an, an orientation around rules. Well, rules aren't themselves bad, right? It's how we use them, how we apply them. But it's first, it's first asking the question, you know, is that the right thing to do? Is this the right rule? What should we do? There's no sense of heart within it, perhaps. There's a sense of perfectionism, because if you don't get it exactly right, then there's something for you to be critiqued about. And remember, if you don't get it right, that determines whether or not you're valuable and whether or not you're accepted. And at its root, at its core, I've struggled with perfectionism my whole life. And at its root, at its core, it's a fear that I'm not going to be accepted if I don't do it perfectly. And so... With this mindset, with Nicodemus, there's a sense of perfection. I've got to know the rules, and I've got to get them exactly right. That's why the Pharisees are talking about tithing even on their herbs from their garden, because they want to make sure they get the rule exactly right, that they don't mess up on a single thing, a single little detail. It's performance-oriented. And when you're like that, it tightens you up, it hardens your heart, it makes you unable to take criticism. Because now, how dare you suggest that I'm not perfect or that I'm not doing it the right way? Bruce is just weariness. This man, keeping yourself in tension like that all the time is just brutal. It's intense. Gives you a sense of insecurity, too, because what if I'm not doing it right? What if I'm not perfect? Well, that means I won't be accepted, I won't be loved, I won't have value, I won't have significance. Gives you the sense of drivenness, drivenness. And I remember as a young leader, as I was training and learning and growing how to lead at all, I remember being given the word driven as if like it was a really positive thing. And I think a lot of leaders like me, perhaps you in your workplace or your home, wherever, have the sense of drivenness that you think is a positive thing. And I can see the ways that we mean that word in a positive way, and I'm not going to try to get too critical about the word. But who gets driven? Horses with a whip. It's like slavery. It's like being beaten and driven and forced to keep going. And certainly, being a self-starter is a good thing. Being motivated is a good thing. But when you feel driven and beaten and you can't let it go, you can't stop, and other things and other people are pushing you forward and you can't let it drop, that's not a fun place to be. Whereas in Jesus, what we see, Jesus was more concerned about the relationships. He was constantly being involved with people that the Pharisees thought he shouldn't be involved with. People on the margins who were excluded who, people who needed grace to feel accepted. And Jesus was going to them. He was more relational rather than rule. He wasn't worried about whether those people were following all the rules. He was worried about the people. There was a sense of joy to Jesus. There was a heart that was more important than how the performance went in people. There was a humility. Philippians 2 talks about the humility of Jesus, that though he was God, didn't cling to his rights as God, but humbled himself in the form of a servant. Now, this wasn't him becoming a slave and trying to earn God's approval. This was his willingness to, to serve in humility. So rather than not being able to take criticism, when we live at a place of grace, like Jesus allows us to, we can receive criticism. We can hear whether or not it's something for us. We can chew the meat and spit out the bones. 
rather than a place of weariness, in fact, we find a sense of resiliency. We can keep going. That's one of the reasons I'm still kicking after all these years. Listen, I've, I've, I've had so many personal struggles in my life. You only know about my divorce because it's obvious. But there's been a lot of other stuff underneath the surface and with my father dying and other things and challenges in my life that you have no idea about. And I wouldn't be able to still be standing if it wasn't for the life of Jesus that was empowering me and keeping me going. Ah. <sighs> The life of Jesus' grace means that because we're accepted, we have a resiliency. We don't have to feel burdened by whether or not we're doing it. That gives us a sense of security. And rather than driven for success, we are just producing fruit. I was, uh, I was out and about and just seeing different times and seasons through the summer, just berries and berries on certain trees and just thinking how beautiful it is that these trees just... They just stand in one place all day and produce fruit. And, you know, I think that we can learn something from that sometimes. We don't need to run around and go crazy all the time. In fact, there's some verses in the Bible that says, make it your ambition to live a quiet and peaceful life that simply reflects the peace of Jesus. So we begin to be fruitful. And yes, we do accomplish things. And yes, there are achievements. But that's not the end goal. It's just a result of being full of life. We're beginning to see the contrast of what it's like to live under grief versus grace. We're beginning to see what it looks like to live just by this standard versus by the good news of Jesus. Let's Again, let's go to the next slide here. Let's look at some contrasts. These, again, are to clarify from verses of Scripture, these types of interactions. Now, this is Jesus speaking to Pharisees. He's not talking to Nicodemus in Matthew chapter 6 here. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But you'll see what he says here. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. Again, what's the purpose of their prayer? It's to be seen, to achieve, to do, in order to gain respect and acceptance. I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. That's all the reward you'll ever get. If you're trying to earn your acceptance by the things that you do, that's all you're ever going to get, and it won't sustain you. It won't be life-giving. Next, let's go to the next slide. Now listen to that in contrast to Mark 1, 1, or 1, 11. This is the very beginning of Jesus' story in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is about to start his public ministry. In other words, he hasn't done anything yet. He's just been living his life up to this point, preparing for his ministry, but he hasn't done it. The very first thing that he arrives on the scene to do is to be baptized. As a sign of his commitment to the Father, and as he is coming up out of the water from his baptism, a voice from heaven says, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. And there's this moment where this, uh, the spirit of the dove rests upon him as well. And so we see the Father, Son, and Spirit all together in this one picture. But notice... Jesus hasn't achieved anything in his ministry yet. And he begins out of this place where the Father is saying, I love you. 
and you bring me joy and delight. You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. He hasn't done a thing yet, but his entire ministry is based out of that love life with the Father. If he tried to just, you know, can you imagine how strange that would be to see a Jesus that was really concerned about rules, to see a Jesus that was trying to earn his father's attention? It's not how Jesus operates at all. Jesus is based in and deeply rooted in that love and that relationship and allows him to accomplish just incredible things. Let's go on here. Look at that. How are you operating? How are you trying to live your faith? How are you trying to live your life? Would people look at your life and say, there's something about how they live. They seem so free. They seem so unburdened. Hard things happen and they still keep going. They just seem so rooted and centered, grounded. Would they say that about you? When I arrived at Arrow, there was a lot of stuff going on at the time. And my mentor there, she looked at me and she said, you look like you're about to come apart at the seams. I didn't look like this. But I was trying to hang on to it. And it wasn't whether or not I was able to live up to that and to do it in my own power because it wasn't about me and my own power anymore. Is about the power of God making this possible, calling me his child, allowing me to be fruitful in some measure. Not because I was good, not because I was, because I was just loved. Are you living in this way, out of that acceptance, out of that grace, out of the life of God, or are you trying to live out of your own power and strength, your own accomplishments, your own abilities, to get what you really want, which is to be loved? If you're not there, the good news is you can change. And you can begin to live this way. You can be born again. Nicodemus walked away from that conversation. He walked away from that conversation, and we think that's the end of the story. But what turns out to be the case, Nicodemus shows up a couple more times. And when he's in the group of all the religious leaders, and they're trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, he stands up and he has Jesus back. And when Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus is there taking away the body. He's no longer concerned about what people would think about him. He's no longer worried about whether or not he would have acceptance from the crowd. He had found the love of Jesus through his personal encounter with the living, risen Savior Jesus. Before, Well, I shouldn't say the living, risen. He hadn't risen yet. But he recognized in Jesus that this was the way of life. Nicodemus could change at great, great cost to himself, perhaps, but he found something far better. And you can too. It's not too late for you to know the good news of Jesus, to know his love, and from out of that to be fruitful. I've got a couple more verses I want to share with you. Uh, let's go to the next slide here. You go to the next slide? Okay, so Galatians 4. 
And the point of this is just to help you begin to see how this model is really describing what's in Scripture already. Galatians 4, verses 5 to 7. God sent him, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law. The way of grief is a, is a way of slavery. So that he could adopt us as his very own children. In order for us to begin from that place of acceptance and love. And because we're his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you're no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Whatever God has is yours. It begins with being accepted, being adopted, being loved. And out of that, stuff starts to happen. Let's look at the next verse. This is Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8-10. God saved you by his grace when you believe, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. In other words, there's not a single thing you could do to earn this. There's not a single thing you could do to be gaining this acceptance from God. It was his grace. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. I'll say that again for the people in the back. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. And once you've received the gift, you don't have to earn it. This isn't like one of those situations where you get a gift and someone says, you can keep paying me back for that. Not at all. It's a gift. You can't earn it, period. We're God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We still do things. We still accomplish things. But it comes out of being his, receiving grace, his gifting, his power, his sustenance, his life within us by the Spirit. So there is hope for Nicodemus. and There's hope for you. And if you've been trying to live your faith out of a sense of accomplishment and a burden that you can't carry, and it just seems too hard, it seems pointless, it seems worthless, if you've been thinking you need to deconstruct your faith and tear it all down because it's not something of any significance, then perhaps what you just need to do is reverse it. And to begin out of that acceptance of grace, to begin from the place of love from Jesus. I pray that you will understand the message of good news. Not the message of the cycles, but the message of good news in Jesus Christ. And that you would live a life that is powered by his. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life, and we thank you that you give it to us as a grace-filled gift. Thank you that you make it possible for us to live, and really live, in a way that's free, and full of life, not in a way that's driven like slaves, but a way that's life-filled and beautiful. Thank you that you intended good things for us and that you uh, allow us to become your heirs, to receive all of those good things when we simply live as your children. We don't have to live as a slave that's come back from the bad things we've done. We don't have to live with, as a slave within the house just trying to earn your approval while we've been here all along. We can live as a child, accepted, known, loved, forgiven, made whole, and out of that, producing beautiful gifts to the world. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've made possible. 
in your death and resurrection. Amen.